And um, so, how are you feeling about being locked down? What, what do you call it? Shut in? What, what's the word over there? Uh, yeah, we're calling it lockdown here or, or isolation, I suppose. Yeah. Isolation. And um, is it um, a strange feeling? How are you uh, reacting to it all? I've recently moved to a new city and it's 350 miles away from everything I'm familiar with. So um, for me, it's like being exiled and locked down. Um, it's very strange. Mm -hmm. Outside is very quiet. Um, it's unusual for a city. And, you know, there's a sense of everybody is holding their breath. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, we're sort of in hibernation uh, a little bit. And um, we don't, we're not hibernating creatures, are we? That's a problem. We're very much uh, social. Um, do you have any, uh, is there any experience like this that you can, it resembles anything in the past? I feel that, um, you know, when you're a writer, you've been writing a PhD or you're studying, you're used to being alone with your thoughts, you're used to sitting for long hours um, at your desk, but there's something about the rest of the world's movement which can, can help you to find that meditative space that you need to write. So in that sense, it's very different from writing a novel where you sit for long hours and you read a lot um, and you look at different kinds of culture for inspiration because that has happened while life has gone on. So it is a little bit like that, but it's also unlike that. And I suppose um, travels in places where people are under curfews like Kashmir, which I've done, is a bit more the same, but I'm very wary of comparing a pandemic lockdown to a fascist state imposing sanctions on a, on a, on a people. Um, so I think it is an unusual and rare situation. And I think what makes it so unusual, which is not a very original thing to say, is how global it is. Right. Um, you know, the fact that you're doing it in Baltimore and I'm doing it um, here is at the same, both extraordinary and very specific so you know i'm very i'm fascinated by the ways different countries have responded to the crisis and the kind of slippages and and how it's highlighting all of these things which for many of us have been our lives work to highlight and suddenly they're just thrown into sharp relief issues of social justice and imprisonment do you think some good novels would come out of this because <laughs> people are now alone they have they have the time to write. I think it will come from where we least expect it and hopefully from where we most need to hear the voices. I hope that happens. Mm -hmm. um, I think it will take five years after this moment is over um, for people to be able to revisit it. I think, I mean, I really admire people who are able to make art out of a, out of a moment like this, especially in words. It's not it's not something that I feel ready or able to do because I am just grieving so hard yeah. for so many things. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like that for me is, it's not fruitful for me to make aesthetic beauty out of that right now. No, I can understand that. I feel the same way. Do you feel like, um, yeah, this, this yeah, so I feel emotion. like, like, there is so much emotion, and now is the time, I feel like, for writers to be listening 
really hard, really, really hard, because that is where I feel for me um, interesting work will come. I, I don't want to use this silence to shout through words. I, I want to make space when this is over for people who I really want to hear from, you know, um, delivery drivers, supermarket supply chain workers, all these people who have the kinds of jobs which are, they're permanently working right now. Yeah. Uh, the, the communities I grew up in, basically. Um, so is there basically, is this the period for you to escape? Uh, because those negative feelings can build so, uh, and, and you need to kind of release that pressure, that feeling of, um, you know, I guess depression, you know, uh, desolation. Do you feel that there's a, a, a role for, for media to play and are you fully using that role in terms of uh, enjoying some, some media? Yes, definitely. I think media is, is making this whole experience inten more intense. Um, it can heighten the grief. It can heighten the shock and outrage, obviously. Social media is so good at that. But other kinds of media as well can give solace. And I'm not sure I'm using them as fully as I'd like to be because there's suddenly so much free content. Mm. Um, and it worries me slightly because it's great to have free content for many of us, but the people who are making it need to get paid too. <laughs> right. And the artists who are struggling so much right now um, need, need that Doing boost. So it's unbelievable. Like uh, the, these uh, Facebook flash concerts that are happening, uh, I understand. Various people offering meditation, yoga, classes online, all that going on. Yeah. What's been really exciting, actually, is watching how academic um, institutions have responded and a lot of academic books which are very expensive and are being made open access and free and, and suddenly these huge libraries are opening up archives and things. So that is really exciting because that is culture and literature that most people in their wildest dreams would never have access to. Why is, so, that? Why is that happening, do you think? Is it just because there's no use, there's no other purpose for it? If they can't get visitors there, they might as well make it online. I feel that it's an opportunity. Um, I think with a cynical kind of brain always trying to work out capitalism's rationale, as well as having a hopeful brain, an idealistic brain, which is saying, okay, someone here is being altruistic and just thinks right now we need to know that this stuff is there and it will help whoever it helps. It doesn't really matter if you find one book or you go down a rabbit hole and come out with a with the equivalent of a diploma or a PhD at the end of it. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, you know, it's a real opportunity for some of these spaces to open up their collections and get and gather new audiences back in those doors when, when the thing opens. So I, I, I'm going to reserve my judgment and see how it goes at, um, after this is done. Sure. And um, so are there uh, books, films, uh, music that you're turning to? Um, what, what, what's, what's on your playlist so far? I'm attracted to cultural outputs, I suppose the word is, or people producing work, which I think is um, is radical. It has a sense of resistance to it, things that have energy and they're very lively or they're meditative, but they still have that undercurrent of something sensual to them. Um, so in terms of music, I suppose I've been listening a lot to Alice Coltrane, um, who, who works in this hybrid jazz tradition with a lot of Eastern influences as well. Um, and her album, Journeys in Satchitananda, is one of my favorite pieces of music. 
um, it, it, it's like traveling on some kind of ecstatic chords. Um, music is really important to me because it's actually an art form that critically I can't engage in. I can't play anything. Um, I, and I can't, I don't know how to think about it critically. I can just enjoy it. And, and so that is a really rich um, thing. And, and, you know, returning to, to that, I suppose, um, I, I'm really into British grime. I don't know if you have ever heard that music, no. but <laughs> it's it's you know it, it's it's got this accent to it, which is so exciting to listen to. It's about energy and resistance and politics. It, it gets in messages. It says things that other people are too afraid to say, and it does it in a way which is totally located in in the UK. Which personally, I find something to celebrate in that because I was born in the UK and I grew up here. Is there one song or one band that you think was part of that genre? Oh, well, I mean, I suppose some of the most famous ones are Santa and Dave, and another one would be Stormzy. I mean, these are world-famous artists who are all making a difference to community representation, but they're reaching very, very big audiences because so many of us can appreciate the artistry that they are using. And... Um, and the messages that they have the courage to say. Mm. Okay. It's not, the, you know, taste-wise, it's in terms of music, it's not for everyone, but that's okay. So that's a contrast there, because one, one, one choice seemed to be sort of relaxing and helping you just to, you know, calm down, and the, the next choice is more, like, a lot, a lot more, uh, what they say, uh, outrage at the situation. So that's interesting. But it's got poetry, okay. that's the point, you, like you know? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm no, I I don't write it, um, but again, it's a in my writing. I think as a fiction writer, I'm in awe of the poets and their ability to compress and use language. And I think grime music has that. Um, it has that playfulness, it has that energy, and um, I've got these very wide musical tastes, I suppose. Um, Another album that I've really returned to quite recently is Nick Cave. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. <laughs> you do? Which, yeah, I really do. Yeah. Which ones? Yeah. Um, Boatman's Call came out. I think that came out when I was in my 20s. 27? No, a bit earlier. So I was a teenager when that came out. And um, it, it really was a moment of music where obviously he'd been making music for a very long time. But, but, that, but that album has kind of traveled with me through various stages of creativity. Um, and right now I think there's comfort in returning to those things which which layer your memory. So you might remember it from when you were 15 and then you remember it again from when you were 25 and, and it follows you. Yeah, I couldn't get that, totally. Um, it's been a while since I've, I've listened to him, but uh, I have to play it again. So you mentioned poetry. Uh, are there some poems that come back to you? You feel uh, that still return to or you keep their various people's lines in your head I came to um, Adrian Rich quite late mm. I suppose my first degree is not in English literature it's in theology but um, when I encountered Adrian Rich I had that kind of transformative experience which I suppose you know, if you wanted to be cynical about it, you would say, oh, that's such a cliche for, for young women to find Adrienne Rich and find her voice in that way. But I think there is something so extraordinary about the permission she gives us to be who we want to be in our writing. 
um, and the way in which a community of writers is built around her um, in solidarity. She's been in solidarity with people who she knew were extremely good poets and just as good, if not you know, working in their own traditions, uh, um, as well as her, Audrey Lord, and so on. And, her, and those female friendships and those connections that she was making, um, and the way they shared, as well as kind of came up against each other is, is and, and it's there in the work. Um, I've got her collected poems on my desk and it has an introduction by Claudia Rankine, whose book Citizen is really important to me because it, even though we're grieving, we have to remember that we, that grief is multifaceted and, and there is an aspect of, of, of pointedness and rage in that grief that has to be channeled into making something that, that says important things about inequality and social injustice when this is over and keeps on saying them. Mm. Yeah, I think that's also in the back of my mind, this feeling of what, what the world's going to be like. Will it be changed as a result of this? Or will we kind of continue and, and kind of forget about this and somehow um, pretend it never happened? Uh, I, <laughs> you know, which is the way, I don't know, looking back on the Spanish flu, uh, 1918, it doesn't seem to, that it left a huge mark on the culture, which is kind of worrying. Um, you, you then got the Roaring Twenties, straight after this, and uh, it seemed like, you know, and that's kind of odd, an odd feeling I have, that it may well be forgotten. I find... I find myself thinking about this one a lot, you know, because my family background is Punjabi, so that's North Indian, and, you know, my parents are the first generation to be born after partition of India. So my grandparents were part of the great migration of people um, from the, what is now Pakistan into India. And it, we always used to wonder... In, in our communities, why does nobody talk about the trauma of that time, the vastness of it, that experience that was so collective and yet so personal to each family who lost somebody, lost many people, lost, lost homes, villages, towns, everybody moved in two directions, three directions. Um, and it took years before those stories started to come out. And it felt to me when I think back on it, and I've done quite a lot of research into this period, that the... The, the desire never to own up to the mistakes that were made kind of met this perfect storm of trauma in individuals to say, actually, we had it bad, everybody had it bad, and we can't talk about it. Mm. And it's that joining of those two kinds of silence that have, that have allowed people to kind of carry on into sleepwalking almost into this situation of global trauma that we now find ourselves in. Um, and we'll see, you know, I, I think that there will be a project and there is an ongoing project of trying to um, narrativize what decisions politicians are making for good or bad. We see, I see it, I'm, you know, I'm not a big TV person, but every night I'm watching these briefings from our government and it's like being read a story to, I know this story that they're reading to me is not true. Right. It's almost like the script is written by, uh, who's that Italian guy who wrote The Death of Stalin and uh, in the thick of it, uh, Inucci. Uh, yeah. It's like the script is being written by him. Uh, I mean, certainly with the Trump press conferences, that's what I get, is a sense of a, a, a nutcase 
who doesn't really understand the virus. He doesn't understand it at the core level. And all, he, all the subtext is re-election and ratings and the economy. And when am I going to get that back? When am I going to get my inheritance back? Because that was my ticket to re-election. And now you messed it up. And so let's rush through this, do whatever fixes and say whatever I can to make that happen again. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like every time I think I want to think they don't understand it, I try to remember that actually, of course, they understand it and they just know what they want instead. Because the end game is their end game feels to me to do with power. It has to do with money in this, in, you know, this kind of, we have this herd immunity theory that's gone around and, and there's a lot of feeling that actually this idea of herd immunity, which is sort of let the virus pass through the population and it will just cull the weakest as survival of the fittest type of narrative. And then there was a big backtracking. No, this isn't the strategy and we're doing this and we're doing this, but actually under the, under the, under the surface of the language, that is actually what is happening. That's how it feels to many of us who are watching it from our isolation stations. And that is very scary. That is terrifying to think that the people who we're supposed to trust are just using language to keep, to get what they want and keep us pacified. It is extraordinary. Um, And if you're attuned to the way that language works, you know, Brexit is still going ahead um, here, which is, again, totally extraordinary. Um, Opportunities have been missed for for Britain to take part in ventilator procurement schemes because emails got lost, um, so they say in the news. And, and you just think, no, this is this is this just can't be true. This has to have intention behind it. But to realize, to really believe that it has intention behind it, means to to look at something, some reality that's so awful that you you don't know where to go after that. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain amount of looking into the abyss and finding that. Uh, you're looking at a very ugly situation. Where, but poetry, uh, I think, gives you a lot of solace in, in these moments. Um, and, and you know, that, that's exciting. <laughs> it has to. It has yeah. to. Uh, who do you think is the, uh, the one uh, that you, you think has captured mo- more of this uh, angst and mood that we're in, you know, uh, in terms of either fiction writers or, or, or poets? Uh, who, who do you think kind of uh, has it, has that tone? I'm thinking, um, you go ahead. I don't know. I mean, um, there are lots of writers who I think could see it coming and they've tried to put that sense of being aghast and heartbroken as well as as, as an urgency of, of, of articulation into their writing in the last five, 10 years. And, and so we've been able to kind of track that moment. And, um, you know, it's something that I was trying to write with in We That Are Young. Um, but that, that sense of kind of being on the brink and these are the things we need to realize and these are the numbers we need to add up in the right order and, and yet this absurdity and then there's this kind of fast forward movement and a writer like Gina Apostol does that brilliantly um, and, you know, um, Mark Haddon, another person who's rewritten Shakespeare or translated Shakespeare, his um, book The Poor Poise, 
has a lot of this kind of swirling, epic beauty and rage. It's a rewriting of Pericles, um, and it just came out. I love that book. Um, but I don't know, you know, who's going to manage to capture the the, the real grief of this. And how you you know um, they say King Lear was written in, in, at the time of the play, <laughs> which I know is a very meaningful play for you, uh, since your book was based on that. Uh, what um, do you do you resonate with that at all? Uh, I mean, do you think that there is that darkness that that comes from the play? Oh, yes. I mean, I, for me, you know, when I think about Lear and the plague being, I don't really, I think this whole thing, oh, you know, Lear wrote this, King Lear was written in a quarantine, therefore, as artists, we have to rise to these heights. <laughs> I feel exhausted I mean, when I think uh, about that. I mean, I, you know, writing it for a PhD and as part of this, no, the novel was, was hard enough. Um, I'm done. But when I think about what's actually in the play, Yes, I absolutely can believe it was written in a quarantine because it realizes these important things which are being, and it distills these important things, you know, let distribution undo excess and each man have enough. That is, that is something that is so extraordinary. It's like, don't hoard, yeah. share don't hoard wealth, don't hoard food, don't, you know, this is about community. Um, oh, you know, the realization that as a rich person, I have taken too little care of this. Here is the disaster that happens when we don't take care of the least in our world. Um, and so that kind of depth of despair and realize, and yet that realization that is possible in these moments, I think that is in the air as well as this kind of impotent rage against, unfortunately, and um, you know, one of the things that's come out of this, especially in the UK, is the rise in domestic violence that's happening Everywhere. during this time. Right. And Leah really is one of the most violent plays towards women. It's got some of Shakespeare's worst curses over and over, just these layers of anger and rage towards women. Um, you know, so I think that there was a lot there that was... That, that speaks to how we are now. Um, for me, it's a play. Of course, it's a dark, dark tragedy. Tragedy, and and you know, people say that with the with the novel, um, that it's unrelentingly bleak. But actually, there is a kind of revolutionary poetics in it, which allows us to say, um, even as we as we capture that darkness, there will be a, a one day. There is there is something beyond Merlin's time where things will be different if we can just get it right. Yes. Yeah, and it might be very confusing to get it right, but that that, chap, that paragraph, that poem, um, that soliloquy does exist at the centre of the play, and for me that's where hope exists. Yeah. Um, I guess Cordelia is one of those hopeful figures as well. Um, in that her... But... Um, Enough with Lear. We can talk, I'm sure, uh, some more about it. How about movies to change the, change it up a little bit? Uh, are there yeah, movie, turn, movies. Turn yeah, I think one of the things um, which can be a real pleasure if you have time um, and is, is to kind of, um, you know how sometimes in art galleries there's a retrospective of somebody's life? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so you can see the progression of their work from early days through different periods until their most recent work. And sometimes I like to do that with filmmakers because, or novelists even, you know, like if you, um, if you have a novelist that you particularly enjoy and then you go back to their very, their very first book and then read all the way through, um, you can, as a writer, it's quite heartening because, you know, I'm on my second book now. So <laughs> it's nice to see that you can grow and change yeah. as a writer. Um, and I've kind of been doing that with movies. One of my favorite filmmakers is Wong Kar Wai. Um, he's, he made this beautiful film called In the Mood for Love, which is set in Hong Kong. But his whole, um, actually, no, that's wrong. It's set, my brain's gone completely blank. Um, so he is, you know, his work is sort of in the, in the mood for love. 2046 these is set in Shanghai um, and when you watch these films you see this visual language to being developed I've just kind of got lost they're very beautiful and lush to watch the music's quite slow they're all about unrequited desires of people who are in, I suppose in a form of isolation from each other's because of social mores really and um, and and how we kind of manage those separations, you know. If you, even when you're locked down with somebody who you know very well, you can feel a sense of social isolation. Mm, that's true. Um, and then there are those of us who are who are separated from family members, and you can't see them because they're miles away, or in a different country, or friends, or people we love across miles. Um, so it's, it's those films which have beauty and love and melancholy um, that I'm really falling into at the moment. Are they available on Netflix, that director? Uh, Wong Kar Wai, I guess, yeah. I, th I wouldn't see why not. Okay, we'll check it out. Because uh, um, um, how about some of the Indian films? Are you thinking of any, any of those? The, uh, some, some great ones recently. Yeah, um, yeah. I find I find myself, uh, you know, in Hindi movies. Do you mean like Bollywood or thinking, Indian independent cinema? In, in either, you know. There's Bollywood, obviously, but uh, there's there's uh, also uh, British directors who kind of taking their cues from some of the Indian. Right, I, I can't remember the one. Oh, uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Oh yeah, I'm no fast. <laughs> um, Danny Boyle, Slumdog Millionaire. Well, um, that film actually is like a chime um, in in my novel, as a counterpoint to the way I think about India. So I find it quite difficult to watch buildings from Roman films in general. You know, like sort of the lonely hero narrative isn't isn't a kind of film um, that I'm that bothered with uh, as a rule and. Yeah. Um, did you it's, like Parasite? Have you seen that? I have seen Parasite. Yes. Um, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Again, I I'm finding it really difficult at the moment because I see a lot of stuff on social media that you know, oh, we have to um, take better care of those of us who who are factory workers and shop people working in shops and and people who are porters and, and we we should realize they're the real heroes. And I think, you know, I don't really include myself in that we, 
because it's not new news to someone who has that in their family history, in their social history. Uh, you know, my job is I work, I teach in a prison. So, you know, there's a whole range of things in which I like Parasite very much, but it wasn't kind of like, oh, wow, look at how these these people are being humanized in a way. For me, it was just a really good story. Yeah, it was a good story. It was incredibly good yeah. story and good acting. Um, how about, all right, so let's, the, the other uh, media we've left out, podcasts, and I guess, um, what else have we left out? Uh, something else, I'm sure. Well, let's go to podcasts. Anything uh, you're listening to? Yes, my so podcast um yeah lots of people have recommended this american life to me and i've heard a couple of long, good long episodes of that there's some really good stuff there on the um on prisons and and i'm fascinated by how the conversation on race imprisonment is so much more advanced in the us than it is in the uk i think that is just extraordinary and i learn a lot from that conversation to be honest um and it's great to kind of get into those those This American Life um, stories because they're about a world that's moving, that's external, um, which is now locked away. So, yeah, I want I want things to that remind me of of, of life. Um, and I've really been listening a lot to live concerts. Okay. I suppose we're back to the music. Um, so sort of like mm. unplugged sessions or. Um, Jill Scott live or Erika Badu live or just sorry about that. Always, I did. Where you um, can hear the crowd. I just yes. I, right now, that's really helping me. That like there was a crowd at a beautiful concert. And we don't have to feel horrified by that. Um, right, it's kind of public gathering. It's going to seem very odd to gather again. Uh, very risky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a concert in Wales that took place um, just before, just when we were, when people were beginning to realise how dangerous it was to gather. We were waiting. A lot of people were waiting for our government to say, you know, we're going to lock down, and it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. So this concert for this band for the Stereophonics went ahead, and you know, thousands and thousands of people were there, and now it just seems like astonishing. Um, that all of that happened only three weeks, four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, but I look forward to going back to that. You know, I'm not, I don't go to a lot of live gigs, but I'm really enjoying listening to them now. Yeah. Um, the energy, yeah, you're right. And the, the, the energy they draw from the crowd, um, from the audience. Um, so any final thoughts for, uh, for us as we continue to go through this? Part of the problem, I think, is the uncertainty of knowing when this is going to end. Uh, it's this extra angst, you know, people don't uh, know if it's going to be next month or, uh, you know, even two or three months, which would be very, very difficult to deal with. I think if you have economic uncertainty, um, that desperation is, I mean, it's unthinkable that this can go on without the, the right support because people will die of hunger. Yeah. People will die of sheer desperation. That, you know, if you're involved in any kind of local community action groups, which 
we are here. Um, there, are, there are things that are the first signs that people can't cope anymore. They're giving up their pets. So lots of cats and dogs are being given oh. to... Do you know what I mean? So these yeah, are the little, yeah, little ripples thing. or something. Yeah. Um, and, and, you, and that... Yeah. You kind of wonder, here, I wonder why testing can't be done on a mass scale. Why you can't... For, I mean, here we've got the Defense Production Act or something like that where you could force industries to create, to, to make things. Why can't we make a test that works? Get all the scientists together and make the test so everybody knows what's going on. I think, you know, obviously the answer for me to that is like, obviously we can, but where is the political will? And that is what has to happen. Like once we start to commodify everything, then human life is just part of that too. And it's a disaster. I don't understand it. Like well, um, one of the things that I feel like, you, you know, we're saying, where do we go from here and, and uncertainty, when does it, it's the uncertainty that is so hard to deal with. And That's true. Um, and the authoritarian governments have done a better job, it would seem, of managing this than, I mean, some of them, not all of them. I'm just thinking of South Korea and maybe China, but not China. I mean, China hit the thing for a long time. Yeah, no, I think in the UK we, we have a near comparator in Germany and that has been so striking to see how the death rate has been so low there. The testing has been very high there. Um, you know, the population, I think I may be wrong about this, so um, I don't want to kind of peddle fake news, but as I've understood it, they're, they're quite good comparators, Germany and, and the UK, in terms of population density and and, and, and things. So, um, so, yeah, I feel that there's no reason, there's no excuse for it. There is absolutely no excuse for it unless we aren't being told the truth about what the real strategy is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I think what's going to come out of this in terms of art mm -hmm. might not be the howl, you know. It might be the lament for a while. Yeah. But it will be a lament that is absolutely underlined with clear mm -hmm. eye of rage. Well, we come to the end of our time. Any final words? Any final thoughts? Uh, and tell us I what think you're the only way we're going to survive this is love. I know yeah. it sounds very, very cheesy, um, but love, love, love the people that you love as hard as you possibly can. Yeah. Value, value uh, things uh, that you probably didn't value before enough. Like yeah, and read, read things that. Um, that remind you what love is, what desire is. Don't lose that sense of desire. Eileen Chang's Lust Caution, oh. I highly recommend it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a novel? It's a novella, um, and it's a kind of, um, it's, it's sort of about authoritarianism, but it's also about love and betrayal. Um, mm. It's so beautifully structured. So I'm, I'm really into writing that's helping me to um, appreciate structure and how structure and narrative can be controlled. I think there's a lot of subliminal stuff in this. So I suppose my parting thought would be um, do a podcast. It's like therapy. <laughs> it is. This is great therapy for me. I really, I really <laughs> I'm sort of uh, getting through this one podcast at a time. And, and uh, I really thank you for being so uh, 
uh, agreeable to, to want to do this and uh, to take a chance on this new podcast. Uh, it's very, very good of you. Thank you. Um, oh, it's a great pleasure to be asked. And uh, uh, we'll stay in touch and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll get to listen to uh, my, my last one was with Ralph McTell and I thought that was pretty good. Uh, so t Streets of London is a pretty good song. Okay. <laughs> and see if you put that on your, your Spotify list. Um, I'll do but, that. Uh, it's a great pleasure talking with you. And lots of luck. And, uh, Thank uh, really you very much. I really admire your work. And uh, I'm getting through. I'm just uh, at the uh, third chapter now of, of your uh, uh, great novel. So Thank you. It's really well done. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care bye. of yourself. Bye. You too.